Well, good morning to everyone. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the New Testament book of Titus. And in just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading from chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It's good to see everybody here and welcome to everyone out there um, that's worshiping with us online. All right, let's hear God's word. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable, and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved with all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful they are self-condemned. Amen. Let's, let's take a moment and pray and ask God for his help. I'll just borrow what we sang um, just a moment ago. We approach, Father, your throne of glory. Nothing in our hands we bring but the promise of acceptance from a good and gracious king. Please, please, God, teach us what we need to know by the power of the Holy Spirit as your word is preached. Amen. Becoming a Christian is far more than becoming a better person. Oh, you'll become a better person. That is inevitable. It's promised. 
But becoming a Christian is far more than that. It's about becoming a totally new person. A new person, if your Bible's open, you'll see this, chapter 2, verse 11, by God's grace in Christ. And in our newness, we are given grace to see everything and to do everything differently and to learn to see and to learn to do everything in a brand new way. Not simply in an improved way, but in a brand new way. So in our conversion, we were not remodeled. We were not added on to. We were not made over. We were born again. We were given a new birth. Because in the Bible, new is better than better. Because new is needed. New is salvation. Better is just better. Better is good. It just can't save. And frankly, being better can, can sometimes be kind of funky. Better can quite easily only be external reality with no real heart in change. The, the cover is not the book, says Mary Poppins. And so open up and take a look, says Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And when we do, we find that our need of him, Jesus Christ, is real. And it is given by faith. And it's ours. Now, the book of Titus is customarily known as a pastoral epistle. There are two others, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They are written to guide and benefit the church and help her leaders. And they are authoritative as they were written under God by an apostle. His name is Paul. And, and they are profoundly gospel-centered. So all the different ways a person will choose a text to teach, the pastoral epistles are the baseline, the template, the, the principle driven in them drives every lesson. Verse 15, do you see it there? These are the things you should teach. And then later on in chapter 3, verse 11, I noticed that actually when I was reading this, I want you to stress these things. So they are profoundly gospel-centered. You cannot read any of the pastoral epistles without running into the gospel. For example, just quickly, 1 Timothy 1.15, right in front, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul goes on after that. Chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 Timothy, the mystery of godliness is great. Okay, so what is godliness? You ready? He, Christ, appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed up in the world and taken up in glory. 2 Timothy 1, verse 1, verse 9, verse 10, two cha chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, chapter 3, verse 12, all gospel in 2 Timothy. And of course, the text that we read this morning is just dripping with the gospel. So each of these pastoral epistles rely on the gospel as the baseline for their appeals, the strength. And they are writing to a person, a pastor, who's in a specific context. So there was Timothy. That's the Timothy of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, who was Paul's colleague in ministry. He wasn't an apostle, but he was a pastor in Ephesus. And so after Paul discovered that in Ephesus, there were people and there were leaders who kind of distorted the genuine message of the gospel that Paul gave them, he sent Timothy to Ephesus to deal with those in the church. In fact, he even names a person, Alexander, who Paul said did him a great deal of harm. He, he named another, Hymenaeus who along with Alexander continued to oppose Paul, impose the gospel, and they were pointing people in the church in the wrong direction and to kind of like a corrupted version of the faith that, that stressed debate and it caused dissension and it elevated personal rights and they misused the moral law of God. Rather than letting it be what it was, they used it as a weapon. 
So rather than the grace of God, the centrality of the cross, uh, grace, purity, unity, equality, humility, and submission, they gave a lot of messed up teaching. And as you would suspect, when you get messed up teaching, bad, rebellious behavior was abounding. Indeed, in there, it was, it was the worst kind. It was bad, religious, rebellious behavior. And so I'm just quoting now from one of my helps. Throughout the letter, Paul uses the phrase Christ Jesus. This is 1 and 2 Timothy, which emphasizes the kingly rule of Jesus to remind the church that Jesus is their real leader. And Jesus is the clearest model of authentic leadership. And so here in Titus, it's pretty much the same thing, just in a different place, Crete. The Crete is the largest island in Greece. So they had their own people there who had their own kind of gospel, plus this and that, teaching the, the church. And they were, disp- uh, you can read it there, pursuing debatable opinions, stuff that seemed good, maybe for a generation or two, but not for all time. So if you look in your Bible, chapter 1, verse 11, Paul tells Titus, they were ruining whole households, teaching things they shouldn't teach for the sake of dishonest gain. And when you think of dishonest gain, don't just think money. Just think like likes eyes on you kind of thing. And as you imagine, Paul tells Titus, you got to stop this. It does not help people to live holy lives. It is the grace of God alone. That's what we read that has appeared that offers salvation and gives transformation to all people. It's the true message of Jesus that helps people change and helps God's people live more holy lives. So we have four points. We won't get through all of them, but we'll, we'll get a lot of them. Number one, how people change. Number two, why Christians change. Number three, what does this change look like? And number four, what to do with those who openly oppose this change in God's church. All right, number one, how people change. And Paul begins to speak here in terms of salvation. Okay, and so you ask yourself how people change. You see it, it is so clear And depending on a person's bent, it either thrills you, bores you, or makes you angry. Chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. If there is no grace that God, verse 11, offers salvation to all people, we are utterly hopeless. Grace because Christ builds his church. Indeed, he built his church with sinners like me. He rescues sinners who he loves and who we grow to love. In the context of a local church. So Paul says grace has appeared. The word there is epiphany. Like where we get our English word epiphany. The appearance. Okay, what appearance? Well, it's there in the text. The birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the ta-da moment. Now, none of that. Okay, so let's think of it like this. If there's none of that, then there's none of this. There's no church. Well, people can still meet together. But no grace in the appearing of Jesus Christ, we would be like a social club, we would be a do-gooders club, or we would be a chat room. But because of God's grace, we are not. And the two other times that Paul speaks about this appearing, you can see this in your Bible, the appearance of Christ to Titus is to say the strength behind our change. The necessary thing, the only thing, that if we don't have, the rest of what we do would not matter a hoot. I mean, you understand, this is worth pausing. All the imperatives that we read, the, 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 the moral behavior, the do-good verses, they do not stand alone. So they cannot be taught alone. 
they must not. That was actually some of the problem in the churches. People were making a hash out of the Bible with their lessons that way. Paul's like, no possibility of change if not for the grace of God and the appearance of Christ. So if you would, chapter 2, verse 13, you see it there? Paul writes of the blessed hope, the appearing of Christ. That's the driving motivation for the Christian's change. Chapter 3, verse 4, the appearance of God our Savior. That's alluding, yes, to the divinity of Christ, but he saved us not because of the righteous things we have done. What is that? That is grace. So, like with most instruction books, I, I can easily skip the steps to get to the finished product. You understand there's that big fat book that tells you what to do, and I can usually skip it and get to the finished product. Well, actually, just instruction books on toys, okay? That's the truth. I can see the picture, and then I can make the toy. But no one dare do any skipping here. How we change is not the same as how to, right? If it was how to change, then grace isn't fully relied on and not fully needed. And we would turn the needle of that question just a bit towards us. But, but foundationally, how to can never be true. How people change. For the grace of God, verse 11, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Thank God. Now, as you, as you take that in, is it not a, a matter of endless praise to God to realize that our salvation ultimately lies outside of ourselves? I mean, one of the most hopeful, the, helpful, excuse me, theologians, maybe he's hopeful too. He once said this, for almost 20 years as a Christian, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. You understand that? I think we all can be honest with there. He will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. And still, I cannot get into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. We need the appearance of Christ. And Paul calls that grace, verse 11, the grace of God, and we have it. That's number one. How people change. For the grace of God has appeared that offers people, offers salvation to all people. Okay, the second question then, why Christians change? Now, Paul begins to narrow that down in terms of Christian sanctification. And what do you know? There's that word grace again. Do you see it in your Bible? Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, grace, it, grace, grace teaches us to say no <laughs> to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives right now in the present age. So then grace is our teacher, not law. You know, not put the hammer down, not threats, not innuendos, but grace. So to answer that statement, why Christians change, first, Paul says the grace of God in the appearance of Christ is saving, yes, but it's also teaching. That's sanctification. The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us. Every Christian then is enrolled in the school of grace. So I've got some really good news about that. And I want you to listen carefully. Because of Jesus, because of justification, right, imputed righteousness, all of us are already A students in the school of grace. Okay? Is that not true? It is true. And we are to treat others as A students as well. Well, you say, what do I mean? Well, I want the logic here. To, to just burn through our minds. This is Paul saying, be what you are. What are you? In Christ, I'm an A student. And this tells me that what I tell you often, 
that we cannot, as Christians, simply relate to each other through, through our works. We cannot even re relate to unbelievers, Paul will tell us later on, we'll have to wait till next week, through our works, through their performance. That, in fact, that was the trouble in Corinth. You see, they were raiding each other in the church, and when you raid each other, you divide each other, and Paul's like, that should not be. So Paul will tell us this exact thing in chapter 3. But here's an, an, an example, an application. Let's say person X is a Christian. And they treat you, another Christian, quite badly. They sin against you. But because you're an A student, a brother or sister in Christ by grace, because of the appearance of Christ, they ask you to forgive them. Now, it may take some time for them to ask. And it may take a long, long time, maybe too long for them to ask. But the grace of God is the grace of God. Because his grace is giving you and therefore teaching you patience to wait and try not to condemn and try not to hurt them. Try not to say, you know, if they were really a Christian, then they would, you know, boom, boom, boom. No. Grace gives you power to allow others to be imperfect as you wait for God to work in his gracious time. Which is, which is the same way God is so patient with us. I mean, that's Paul's argument in chapter 3. Spurgeon. Let us measure ourselves by our master and not by our fellow servants. Then pride will be impossible. Now, you may confront that person and that would be fine. And they may say, oh, forgive me, I am so sorry. And that would be great. But a question. If that happened, who would you praise? Would you praise yourself or would you praise your God? The grace of God and the appearance of Christ who teaches us such a wonderful lesson. But there's more. Let's say you confront them and nothing happens. Still grace because grace is teaching you patience. Grace, the teacher, is teaching you as a student as well. Or let's say you just you stay very angry. And yet, this is the beauty of the gospel. And yet, the grace of God is still covering you. And you might need to learn that lesson. You, you need to learn the lesson of being marveled by the extravagant forgiveness of God in Christ extended to you as you realize this. What's the song that we sing on occasion? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace than, greater than all our, all mine, all yours, all theirs sin. So grace is the teacher. Secondly, grace teaches specific lessons. Do you see it there, verse 12? Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives now. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearance of Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen carefully. That verse is written in the aorist middle participle, right? You're like, boop, 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 what does that mean? This is what it means, and this is what I tell you. The grace of God, which teaches us to say no to what is bad and yes to what is good, Paul writes, is all the time covering you and all the time teaching you to say no to what is bad and yes to what is good. So Paul is saying here, this is a completed work because it has happened, 
and yet is happening all the time. In other words, there's no time, Christian, when grace is not covering you, and there's no time, Christian, when grace is not teaching you. It is nonstop. It's like my daughter Lindsay was when she was two years old. She probably slept like five minutes her whole two-year-old life. I mean, really. Grace never sleeps. Now, isn't that good news? That means a lot to me. I hope it means a lot to you. And it means a lot of things, but it does mean when we're not gritting our grace lessons down, when we're not getting those moral imperatives down, verse 12, when we are being ungodly and worldly and we're just using mere human thinking and we have no self-control, grace, God's grace is there. And God's grace is still teaching us when it seems like we are not learning. And yet, Christian, you are learning. And you are an A student. Why? Grace. And I want to ask you this question. Who would dare demean the finished work of Christ on the cross and say grace is not enough? Who would dare do that? Who? Remember Yule Brenner in the movie, The King and I? Who, who, who? Who? Galatians 2.21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness, not just conversion righteousness, but all the, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And on the other end of that stick, when you're getting your grace lessons down, when you are being godly, self-controlled, unmoved by worldly passions, you don't get to move up to the front of the class. Why? Because every Christian is already in the front of the class. Why? The grace of God and the appearance of Christ, which brought you salvation, is teaching you to say yes to what is right and no to what is wrong. And it doesn't change you in God's eyes one bit. Thirdly, still on the same point, look to where the strength of what Paul says in verses 12 and 13 lies. Okay, have it down in your Bible. So he says what he says in verses 12 and 13. And then he says, who, and that's Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all wickedness, that's justification. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That is sanctification. Now this is what I want you to see. All those moral imperatives in verses 12 and 13 that are just there and you cannot escape them. That's what we, that's our focus, that's what we need to be about. They all hang on the hook of the appearance of Jesus Christ. That Christ himself for us, uh, gave himself for us. That Christ redeemed us. Christ purified us. We belong to Christ. His work was voluntary, substitutionary, and infinitely costly. Therefore, the strength, okay, the strength and the certainty of our change rest on Jesus Christ. The things which stops us from, from justifying ourselves from endless works is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Do we play a part in sanctification? Oh, yes, we do. It's just not the part. It's not the foundational part. We need the grace of God and the appearance of Christ. Jesus Christ will work in us to change our ungodliness to godliness. Jesus Christ will change our self-centeredness to self-control and self-surrender. Jesus Christ will change our worldly thinking to grace-filled thinking. And, and just as a brief aside, remember, what was one of the problems in the churches? Both the Cretan church and the Ephesian church. They were misusing the moral law of God, God's moral imperatives, the, the, the do-good verses. And so the false teachers were not teaching the full gospel because they would teach stuff with no gospel connection. And that was death. 
I mean, I hope you understand that, that, that. If you just say, do this and do that and add this and, and don't do this and that. That's the preaching of the law. Paul will not do that. I mean, can you see how he just gives us the gospel? Every few verses, gospel. A moral imperative gospel. A moral imperative gospel. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So there was a lady who I read about this week. Her name was Eliza Hewitt. She lived in the ninth century. She was a teacher, a school teacher in Philadelphia. So one day she was dis disciplining a student. And he didn't like it, and so he picked up his little slate, you know, but they would use back in the day, and he hit her so hard on the back that it knocked her out and put her in a body cast. Six months. The day came for the cast to be removed. History tells us, this is, she thanked the doctor, but she praised God in the office. And she went home, and on that very day, listen to what she wrote. This is a hymn. There is sunshine in my soul today, more glorious and bright that glows in any earthly sky, for Jesus is my life. Now listen, she does not fully recover, but she keeps serving Jesus. She would later write the song, when we all get to heaven, when we all get to heaven. Do you know that song? When we all see, see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Right, sing the wondrous story. I'm, I'm just helping myself here. Get it? No full recovery. She's still singing his praise. So a person might say, well, what if, what if, you know, the school of grace, okay, but what if we're a terrible student? And you see, that's when we're tempted to get off into those debatable questions that Paul warned Titus about. And you see, this is why I tell you, you see verse 14? Again, forgive me, it's written in the aorist active subjunctive. And this is what it means. Christ is acting on us himself. Christ is setting his work in us. In a moment in time in our conversion, yes, and all the time in our sanctification. So this is instantly grace and perpetually grace. Christ is at work. It may not seem so, but it is so. And this is, you know, this is where Paul would say, and eyes on your own paper here. You know, eyes on your own life. Don't measure yourself by others. Measure yourself by your master. And so, yes, we know every Christian would say that we, we are not what we should be. But every Christian would also say we thank God that we're not what we used to be. And we thank God that we're becoming what we ought to be. Now on earth and on the other side of heaven. Fourthly, look at the motivation to do good. You see it there? Where is the motivation coming? Because, you know, only a transformed heart can understand what Paul says in verse 14 and take it in and apply the lessons. You, you don't need so much grace to do verses 12 and 13. Now just bear with me. But you do need it to be, but you do need to grace to enjoy verse 14. You see, a person can be good for their personal benefit. I mean, we have to admit that. But that is sub-Christian. It's less than what we are. What is the Christian's motivation for doing good? It is Jesus, isn't it? Isn't it Jesus? You see, the teaching power for change here, according to Paul, which means according to God, is God's grace and those mighty memories of the cross. I mean, he's going to do it in chapter 3. But he keeps taking us back to the appearance of Christ. There's your strength. How much mercy we were shown. There you go. And what the gospel means. And he takes us then to the scandal of the cross and how Jesus is changing us and how we take that same grace and extend it to others. Isn't that the lesson of verses 1 and 2 and 3 of chapter 3? 
Subject yourself to rulers and authorities. Be peaceable and kind and considerate. Because remember what you used to be. Remember, and who treated you so kindly, so graciously? It was God your father. It was God your father. This means, listen carefully, the motivation for being good in, in Christ is Christ. Now, will you have personal benefits to your obedience? Yes, you will, but not always, right? There's lots of people in the Bible who obeyed and they got it handed to them. They didn't get all the blessings from heaven. They will in her, on, on earth, or excuse me, they will, they will in heaven, but not on earth. So you ask yourself, why do I obey? For personal benefit or for Jesus' sake? Let me just tell you a quick story. A long, long time ago, which means it doesn't involve anybody in this room, I was doing marriage counseling, okay? And, and I did what I'm doing here and, and did this, and I said, here's why you should be a good husband, and here, here's why you should be a good wife. Do it for Jesus Christ. And when I was did, did that, I was like naive back then, maybe still am, and it was like drop the mic moment, you know, like boom, home run, you know. You did it again, Joe. They're just going to fall in line and say, oh, that's a great reason. And, and I usually write down when things happen to me. Now, I, I didn't do it then, but I almost remember. So this is like, I'm not sure, but I almost remember the husband going like, don't, don't say that. Because they looked at me like I was the antichrist, you know, <laughs> like, what do you mean do it for Jesus? Don't you know what they're doing? Don't you know what they're doing? Get out of here, you know. What does Paul say? I want to know who? Christ. I want to, I want to be better, okay. I want to do better, okay. You can do that without Jesus, kind of, sort of. I want to know Christ. Says Paul, know Christ, then everything else will fall in place. Final point. We're only going to get to three and just in part. What does this change look like? Well, we've got some of that in verses 12 and 13. But look at verse 15. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To, do, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Show true humility then to the whole human race. That's a better translation in the Greek there, by the way, of that last line. And here we have our list of do's and don'ts. But again, please look at verse 3. What is the basis for our change? What is the reason? What is the motivation to do and not do what Paul says here? If you like... The reason, what is it why we should be peaceable and gentle towards everyone, subject yourself to authorities, you know, to make things better here? Well, okay, but Paul doesn't say that, verse 3. Remember the gospel. At one time you were foolish, you were disobedient, you were deceived, and you were enslaved by all kinds of passions and, and pleasures, all the people that you need to treat with humility. In other words, we were just like them. But then verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, when grace appeared, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. In other words, listen carefully. If you just stop at verse 2, and that's all you say. You see it there? You just taught, taught a synagogue sermon. That's what the Pharisees would teach. Do this, don't do that, flat. You've given the law, and the law kills. And what you allow in the life of a church, to be honest with you, is the rating game. She's this good, but she's that good. He's that good, but he's that good. He's that good, but they're not that good. Justification does not do that. It cannot change us. So Paul says, 
what he says there in verses 3 and 4. So, so quickly, Paul tells Titus to do this. Okay, encourage the church and rebuke the church with all authority. I mean, that's easy, right? No. <laughs> and then he gives a list of do's and do not. And look at the first do not, verse 15. Do not let anyone despise you. Now, who, here's the you. It's Titus. Titus, don't let anyone despise you. So Pastor Titus will go to Crete. He's there by God's charge. He, he is given the charge by Paul to set things right in the church. And so he gets there and everyone will go, oh, thank you, Titus. Yes, yes, we agree with you. This is terrific. You're so swell. What's that going to happen? Some people will do that, but will everyone do that? I mean, let's be honest. No. But you want to say, come, come now. You know, don't be that naive. Hence the admonition from God through Paul, do not let anyone despise you. Now that word, and this is why we'll settle here and be done. The word despise is a very interesting word. Because in many ways, it's the complete opposite of the word grace. Despise is a graceless word. It means to overthink a person with their own personal perspective so intensely that you are looking for, for what you are looking for and what you want to find, a fault, is exactly what you find. So the idea is like this. If all you are looking for and all you want to see is a fault in a person, you are graceless and you will in turn despise them. You'll look down on them. You'll ignore them, belittle them, ridicule them, pick on them and hurt them because you're going to find a fault. You will find it. That meticulous kind of search will come up with something. So Jesus dies for sinners. The despiser condemns them. And so to despise a person is to look at them from every angle and you think so deeply with just simple, simple human standards, you overthink the person, you inject your personal bias, you, you rate them, you go beyond the Bible, you exalt your thinking over the Bible, and you think, you know what, it's right to despise them. It's right to call them out, as we would say. Quoting now, by exercising your personal perspective, injecting your bias, there is no grace in fact, one translation used the word nitpicking. So I'm like, what is nitpicking? Because I don't know what it meant. And so nitpicking, the origin comes like this. So when a per person is looking for nits or, or lice eggs, you get out the instruments, you know, and you go through the head and you're so meticulous. Hair by hair by hair by hair. And so the term nitpicker is a person who finds faults, however small or unimportant, everywhere they look. And here Paul says, don't let people do that to you, Titus. Don't let people despise you. You've been given authority to teach, so teach. Now, let me read you a prayer of a pastor who was despised. This is back in the 16th century. And then I'm going to give you some questions. This is what he said. Father, in an entirely princely and pious manner, they despised the poor preacher and faithful worshipers of Jesus Christ and tread them underfoot. We are covered in contempt. But God, you are. And you will be gracious to us. Amen. That's from the, the 16th century. So I, I asked myself the question last night, actually. Okay, Paul says, don't let anyone despise you. Okay. How? <laughs> Isn't that a good question? How? Three answers. Number one, you say to them, please don't despise me. Please, please don't. Number two, you say to God, your father, please, God, make them stop despising me. 
three, maybe other people will see that and say to the despiser, please stop. Please stop. Those are the best I could come up with. Then I found this quote. We can cause evil, not only by our action, but also our inaction as well. And then another, our claims to accurate judgment about another person are not always reliable. And therefore, our best approach is to approach them with a bit less confidence and far more caution. I think that's fair. I think, I think Paul would agree with that. So let's, let's end. And let's, let's end understanding that the gospel message is not merely intended to produce new converts. No way. It is essential and it's needed for those who already believe in Christ in every area of life. In fact, Paul wrote to the church. You can find this in Romans 1. He wrote to the church in Rome and he said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Those who already knew the message. Because verse 16 he says, the gospel is the power of God. So Paul, under God, viewed the gospel as daily food for every human heart. For the Christian and for the non-Christian. The gospel. It's our foundation. It means its juices flow. Grace flows through everything in the life of the church. It keeps our eyes on Jesus Christ. What he has done in the past. What he will do now. And, and thank God for his return. What he has done in the past. That's our justification. What he's doing now. Our sanctification. And what he will do at our return. Our glorification. When we never have to deal with this kind of stuff again. So let none of us, please, let none of us despise these words from God's word. Thank you. Let's pray. Just a moment, please, as we just think through these. Father, thank you that before you is not our holiness but the perfect holiness of Christ. Oh God, please give us grace to believe this and enjoy this, to remember this, and to graciously extend it to others. That God, although we still wrestle with sin, you have declared us righteous, giving us the perfect obedience of Christ and now his power to live a new life. Again, not a better life, but a brand new life for the glory of our master. So may we see Jesus Christ in all things and live for him in all things and obey him in all things. And may you please bless your church greatly. For Jesus' sake we pray these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your attention. And hope you have a nice day.